0: And welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I am Mark Dickerson.
1: And I'm Jeremy Fink.
0: And we are a couple of independent filmmakers. Um, I am from the Philadelphia area. i um, been doing it for some time now, uh, you know, still just making my way. Um, you know, gotten in some film festivals, things like that. Uh, but I would say that the films I make are very much influenced by... The types of films that we are going to discuss on the show.
1: And I am also an independent filmmaker. I just finished my first feature film, Unspeakable, which is a silent film that we're hoping to take to festivals in the coming year. And I am also heavily influenced by our cult movies that we'll be looking at here. So for our first episode is actually going to be a two-part episode called Before Middle Earth, the early films of Peter Jackson. This is part one, the early, early films. Since 2001, upon the release of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson films have gone on to gross over $2 billion at the box office. However, we all had to start somewhere, and for Peter Jackson, he started with bad taste. Movies are a medium in which you can get away with murder. You can, you can show um, anything you like, and, um, and it's safe and harmless and nobody gets hurt, and yet it can certainly... Shock or thrill a few people, which is also a bit of
0: fun. my spinning steel hit? So, Peter Jackson, uh, you know, directed, wrote, produced, shot, co edited. <laughs> um, he has a couple of roles in the film um, in Bad Taste. Um, he also made most of the makeup and the, the special effects. Um, The plot line is basically, uh, basically involves aliens invading uh, a fictional town, uh, a village, I guess, in New Zealand. Um, And their goal is to basically harvest humans for their, basically I guess it would be like a fast food restaurant or Mm -hmm. uh, a franchise of some kind. Um, And basically they face off against um, a paramilitary force. um, And uh, there's, lots of craziness going on uh i don't know if story is the the main focus uh with this film it's basically a a showcase for uh jackson's you know homemade special effects uh him and his crew um and basically it's it's what got jackson started i mean it was his first first feature um started out actually as a short um that kind of evolved into a feature um where where he was just, you know, using his, his old sixteen millimeter camera. Um, and you just shoot on weekends um, and ended up, you know, building from there and actually took on a life of, of its own. And basically over the course of four years, um, you know, he was able to complete this feature.
1: Yeah. And Mark, and you mentioned that he started as a short film actually that yeah. was originally intended to be about 10 minutes long, um, which quickly, quickly grew. Um, and it actually for him, uh, the, the budget is a bit debated, but he started out self-financing this film mm-hmm. um, because he was working at, I believe, some kind of printing, like a newspaper facility. And he basically employed all of his coworkers to come make this film. But you made the note that uh, this one was really an opportunity for him to show off some of his special effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of grew out of that. Um, what's interesting is Jackson, before he made this film, he, he, he got his filmmaking start when he saw the movie King Kong as a kid, the original King Kong movie. And was just totally blown away by the animation so if you actually see some of his early early work before he even made this feature film he has some shorts where he was experimenting with stop-motion animation um and other techniques but this was really his first opportunity to go and film a big live-action feature film
0: you know he shot it in his hometown uh which was north of wellington new zealand um you know using that 16 millimeter camera kind of took over his hometown and made it into this fictional town Uh, and and let everyone kind of go nuts and (laughs) see what they can come up with. The the effects are obviously influenced by, you know, people like Tom Savini, um, you know, just how gory they were. The Tom
1: Savini reference there is interesting, too. Um, because in an act, in an interview I came across with Peter Jackson, mm-hmm. he mentioned the influence of Dawn of the Dead specifically, uh, um, which yeah. was interesting to me because I, I, a lot of filmmakers from that era would talk about Night of the Living Dead, especially the low-budget filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clear from this that Jackson was really drawn to this just insane, over-the-top gore. Um, right. There's there's a, a great quote from George A. Romero where he was talking about blood, and I, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but I believe he said something along the lines of, in Black and White... You know, it's blood, it's gore, it's horrifying. But when you do it in color, it's just red. And I think that Jackson must have been drawn to something about the comedy and the fact that it's just red, mm-hmm. you know, the, the playing with the blood, the gore, the the brain spilling out of the head, the, the just, you know, aptly named, bad taste. Right.
0: Exactly. <laughs> it says it all right there, everything you need to know. Um, And definitely, I mean, from, you know, Night of the Living Dead to Dawn of the Dead, there's, there's definitely, uh, it, it ramps up, you know, the effects and the amount of gore and blood that, that gets shed. So I'm sure that was a huge influence on him um, and his friends.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. So we, we started hitting on the fact that it started out as a 10 minute short film. Um, I believe the number, the the number got kicked around a little bit in terms of the budget. Um, I've been able to find everything from 10,000 to $17,000 made on this, which, you know, with inflation now, what would we say? Maybe 30,000, 40,000, but still a pretty, Low budget film, relatively for what they were able to accomplish. Definitely. Um, so the the way it got started out though, so they were making it on their weekends, and eventually at some point in the price in the process, he kept going to the New Zealand Film Commission mm-hmm. and asking for help because in New Zealand, especially back then, as compared to America, which Mark and I are both American filmmakers, uh, the funding for fin- the financing for films is a little bit different. Basically, most of it would come from a film commission. There aren't as many independent financiers who would help people out. So he was actually rejected twice on the money front uh, and just kept putting his own money into it. And once they had a lot more of the film accomplished, uh, he went back for a third time and the New Zealand Film Commission did help them out, yeah. um, which I think I think is interesting because uh, you, you do see a change in terms of the scope mm-hmm. of what happens, particularly at the end. So I'm going to make a note now, there may be some spoilers ahead on this show um, S- as we go along. So at the end, there's a big... Scene where you see a house that it happens to be a spaceship take <laughs> off and fly away, which is something that doesn 't look like it could have been made nah. easily it's on pretty, a... pretty
0: ambitious effect actually
1: yeah it's very impressive yeah. i I was totally blown away and couldn 't mm-hmm. even figure out how they did it until I did a little more research mm-hmm. um, into that one, but just overall though really the the effects on this film are unbelievable,
0: especially considering that there apparently was never a script for the film. they just kind of i'm sure they you know storyboarded things and came up with ideas beforehand but you know there was no actual script so they were kind of just filming from ideas that they had so it's pretty impressive if you think about it like that
1: yeah and and a ton of ingenuity involved in these effects too just because of the sheer Mm -hmm. uh low budget aspect of the way the film was made um ingenuity in the effects but also just how they created it for one example uh one little bit of information i found was that one friend of Jackson who was in the film played an assortment of aliens and actually died as an alien 23 times in the film wearing <laughs> different masks and it, so it's really it's really just a testament to what can be done on such a small budget yeah, um
0: i mean and the you know it's it's the alien masks themselves i mean they were literally homemade they were ho- they were baked in peter jackson's mother's oven uh which Mm -hmm. is a a well-known fact about this film but (laughs) you can't get more you know home quality than that so um... yeah and those
1: masks are an interesting little tidbit as well um because so as as we so basically how the as the plot progresses at some point we start to get to see the aliens um initially they're in human form so you can't really tell the difference but when we do finally get to see them which is the alien is the image that's featured and has kind of now become a bit of an infamous image of the alien flipping, flipping us off as the viewer <laughs> or on giving the DVD a DVD case, sign. <laughs> or giving a peace sign, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, but but these masks, if you look at them, they're flat on top. And what was interesting about the way they were created is because they were just being made in a home conventional oven. Uh, the oven actually wasn't large enough to hold the entire mask with the rounded head. Uh, so they actually had to flatten out the top of the aliens' heads in order to fit it in the oven, and then they could just barely squeeze them at that size onto the actors' heads.
0: Yeah, I do love that fact. Um, and the you know everything was homemade, but basically not just the alien masks, but the firearms used—they were all fake, using wood and and cardboard and aluminum tubing, I believe. They had a homemade crane, uh, which apparently they couldn't even look through the camera while they were using it, which I I found pretty interesting. <laughs> as we both know making a movie is hard enough without being able to see what the actual image is going to be so um you know they also had a homemade steadicam that they used i mean it's very impressive um Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about later how you can watch actually some of the the behind the scenes footage for
1: that yeah there's a ton of good behind the scenes we'll get to that a little later um so do you have any any favorite scenes favorite moments mark from this guy
0: uh yes i do funny you should ask um well, just to I, I just noted a few. My second, this is my second go around with this film. Uh, I'd watched years ago, and uh, just kind of was was taking note of, of things that stood out to me or things I remembered. Uh, one of the things I found actually very funny was when he's rapidly punching one of the aliens. Um, just it's it's such like a, a Three Stooges moment, you know. It just kind of like adds insult to injury. It, it just shows that he's you know he really was going for broke. Like he you know it was an all out comedy. It's almost like you know it was comedy comedy and effects before anything else. So I I found Mm -hmm. that kind of endearing. Um, Also blowing up the sheep with a rocket launcher is obviously Mm -hmm. a a highlight. (laughs) Um, That that always gets a laugh. Um, And also climbing through the alien at the end um, after chainsawing into him. Mm -hmm. I, I, that was, you know, totally gruesome and actually, thinking of dead alive which we'll get to um it kind of comes back in, a, in yeah, a way it comes back a little bit yeah um, i think
1: but, i think something for me that happened in this one that i really enjoyed was even though it was an early film for jackson here you can already see a really unique sense of imagery um and kind of how he would establish and create these lasting images uh one that stuck for me was when the main character um derek uh who was played by jackson correct yeah, was, uh, I believe so, yes uh played by jackson jackson actually played two parts in this two roles yeah. um Two roles, one one of the alien roles, and then one Derek, who's kind of this very eccentric Crazy, yeah. alien <laughs> fighter. Um, yeah. But he actually, speaking of that chainsaw, there's a moment where he cuts his way through a wall and he cuts it out in the shape of his own body and kind of busts through the wall, which is just a really beautiful image that kind of stuck with me and just in, in my in my mind kind of summed up this film a little bit. It's just that it, it doesn't really follow normal logic where someone cutting through a wall would just cut a rectangle out. Yeah, he specifically cut out a body shape. It's very cartoon yeah. yeah. Very cartoon-esque. Definitely. Which is interesting that you say cartoonesque, because another film, the next one we're going to get to, Meet the Feebles, is it, it, 10 times more cartoonish than this, <laughs> almost border, borderline literally. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, it's, it's interesting how bad taste is, kind of takes place in an isolated, very unique mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where it is allowed to be cartoonish. For example, another favorite moment of mine with Derek, where his head and his brains end up exposed right. more than anyone would like to have them exposed. And so, you know, instead of following the normal laws of logic, where if one's <laughs> brains were spilling out, he probably wouldn't be able to move much, Derek simply takes his belt and ties his head shut and is immediately then able to get up and start moving around. Mm-hmm. So it, it almost follows like a Looney Tunes yeah, kind of logic. Yeah.
0: It's kind of, it's like a movie that only a young person could make, you know, someone who's just kind Mm -hmm. of throwing all their ideas at the wall, seeing what sticks, like I said, going for broke. Um, And you mentioned that, you know, the location for it, the setting, and I was uh, thinking about that, you know, how um, the limitations of what they had kind of add to the charm. Like the plot is that they, you know, they made use of these limitations with having no budget because most of the people in the village are missing, right? And Mm -hmm. the the aliens then... You know, appear as as humans for most of the film. So they found ways around it that would fit their story. You know, for what they needed, and I just thought that was was interesting how they did that.
1: Yeah, and I think the setting too. The fact that uh, it was all filmed in his hometown in New Zealand. It, even though even though this film isn't in a traditional sense the way you would call it like a portrait of a place like Woody Allen's Manhattan or something like mm-hmm. that. It, it is kind of interesting that he does paint. Such an interesting portrait of his hometown mm-hmm. in a similar way that maybe Robert Rodriguez did in El Mariachi or, you know, or a lot of kind of low budget movies where he really, because he was limited resource wise, he really used his space beautifully. There, there's some stuff shot on the coasts and on these hills in New Zealand that even though there's this really dastardly crazy stuff happening, it's pretty lush. Uh, which which is an interesting interesting contrast I think is one of the things that has such an appeal for this movie and that makes it hold up all these years later is that it, it is it is a weird combination seeing people being shot at and stabbed and cut in half in front of these beautiful settings I mean if mm-hmm. we look at his later films you know it almost looks like The Shire a little bit except a lot bloodier <laughs>
0: right <laughs> definitely um, and also I was impressed watching through it again the, the ways he created tension through the editing. Um, cause not only the effects are impressive, but I actually thought the editing was pretty well done for a first film. I mean, snappy. yeah, he, you know, I imagine he relied on the editing to make, you know, make much of the action set pieces work. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's very fast. There's a lot of, he also creates a lot of tension through it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was an amateur production, but I think parts of it, like, you know, the practical effects are very impressive. Um, and the model work on the house, like we were talking about, being lift o- lifted off into space. I mean, there's some a- ambitious things going on here.
1: Yeah, So, and those houses were an interesting story because that's something that kind of showed the evolution mm-hmm. of the process. Because initially they were working in, in just a normal house, which was actually a friend of the family. I learned from some behind-the-scenes oh. information. It was a friend of the family, and they were originally told that they would be shooting there for four or five days. <laughs> and it quickly and slowly turned into four years <laughs> shooting on nights and weekends. Just casually uh, so that, taking over their house, you know. Just ca- Yeah, just casually. <laughs> um, but, but what happened is they, they had a scene where they needed to blow up a corner of the house. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they couldn't actually blow up their neighbor's and friend's house because that wouldn't fly, and, you know, they might need the location again. So that's when they decided that they were going to build a model house. So they built about a half-size model house and experimented with how to blow it up and that eventually they were able to figure it out. They rigged up a you know, a bazooka kind of missile on a wire, on a fishing wire, and we were able to fire it at the house. So that worked well, but then they ended up having to build a third, even smaller house to get the one off the ground at the end with the aliens. Um, which was interesting that just, even on this low budget production, the the fearlessness to take on things like model building and prosthetics, because I know personally as an independent filmmaker who's worked in that micro budget range, mm. You know, occasionally there's some concern when it, because obviously it does cost money to build models, and that is a big risk. So it was pretty impressive yeah. for a young filmmaker to dive into that.
0: It was also impressive how you know the creatures themselves, the aliens, like how distinctive looking they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, when you see that that alien, you know you know what it's from. Um, I think it makes the movie stand out maybe more than it would makes it a little bit more memorable like you mentioned the uh the box art where he was giving the middle finger they actually centered it to, on in mm-hmm. some markets to, so he's giving a peace sign but just that image of that alien is you know so memorable um just to wrap it up with uh, to bad taste and kind of move on to his next film um, just want to give my i guess final thoughts on it and then we'll move on to to what you think but I, I just want to say that it's kind of like Kind of like seeing someone's uh, home movies, um, you know, th- it's very endearing, even with all their <laughs> grotesque, you know, things going on. And for me, it's to me, it's kind of like the ultimate in no budget filmmaking, um, just getting a bunch of your friends together, making a, a sort of sci-fi epic. Um, They're clearly having a lot of fun and it certainly carries over to the film itself. Um, and I think in a way that this movie could be inspiration to young filmmakers out there about what you can do with so little um, and that enthusiasm can go a long way. Yeah. So uh, definitely. Yeah. So what? Are, what are your final thoughts on on bad taste?
1: So I agree. I'm right there with you on the fact that it's a really inspiring film. You know, for for a young filmmaker to watch. What what I thought was interesting about this is, as we kind of mentioned at the beginning a little bit, it's because it started as a short film. In terms of plotting and writing, it's a little bit abstract and out there there are certain things that don't necessarily line up or make sense mm-hmm. but it's one of those one of those wonderful films where i think it's more about the experience of being in that world for the runtime than yeah. necessarily following it closely and knowing what's going on um there, there are a lot of really great cathartic crazy moments mm-hmm. more so than you know the straight running across it's, it's and it's interesting seeing someone uh, you know, this, this guy who went on to direct huge movies like Lord of the Rings that were this big, swooping, meandering narrative to have started with something that's kind of so contained and all over the place and just a real fun ride.
0: They certainly did not let story get in the way, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> no, definitely not.
0: This is a, our first episode, so, you know, go out there and, and like us. And that would help um, if you could we'd appreciate it. You can find us on uh, iTunes, Instagram, and Facebook right now. Uh, we will put the links in the description. There's a behind the scenes, which we found on YouTube, and that's called Good Taste Made Bad Taste. And that's from 1988. Um, and that's great because not only does it have interviews with Jackson and actually his parents, but it also shows uh, some of the camera gear that they use, you know, how everything was homemade. And um, it's, it's really interesting, especially if you're a young filmmaker. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's an awesome uh, documentary to watch. All right, this is going to do it for us today here. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. You've just heard episode one, part one of this series. Join us next time. We'll be looking at Peter Jackson's next film called Meet the Feebles. And we will see you next time on the other side.